morning again. Um, okay, so I wanted to start off uh, by saying that this paper was a uh, derivative of one of my classes that I had here at Clark Atlanta University under the direction of uh, Dr. Kurt Young. And um, so I wanted to start off by stating that um, throughout my readings in his coursework, I realized that the term African nationalism was, um, it, it's kind of broad. And um, a lot of the times people are not understanding that there are differences between the ideologies of these people who are promoting nationalism throughout the diaspora. And so when I looked at, um, when I did my readings with Emel Cabral and Ngugi Watiago, I noticed that both of them had uh, similar approaches to their uh, um, methods on how uh, Africa should be liberated by, uh, by their uh, colonial oppressors. So I started to notice that um, there were three types of nationalism cultural, civic, and um, ethnic. And I, tip, I noticed that uh, ethnic nationalism was too extreme and it does not allow for uh, um, the culmination of uh, agreements or um, approaches between people in, of the same nation. Um, there are different ethnic groups in, in different nations. Um, my, you know, my colleague before me mentioned the caste system in India and that definitely does um, create uh, barriers between who can, um, you know, partner with each other. So when you look at uh, eth uh, uh, civic nationalism, civic nationalism does not give an account of uh, one losing their agency when um, gaining liberation. And civic nationalism definitely leads to neo-colonialism. And of course, Ngugi Watiago and Emil Carker Brawl were both outspoken on the promotion of those policies. So I, I wanted to definitely look at, uh, before I could even do an analysis of the two individuals, I had to understand that both of their ways of thinking and philosophical awakenings comes from their understandings of what uh, Frantz Fanon um, was calling the, uh, you know, um, the oppression and the oppressors. So uh, definitely, uh, they, you know, the centering around culture, the struggle for liberation in Africa resides in the ability of the people of Africa to transform how they perceive their own agency. And culture can be utilized in two different ways, uh, tools, it can be used as a tool in different ways in order to either oppress for dominancy or to liberate those individuals. Um, to highlight those, I wanted to highlight some of the methods that, uh, that are in, in, infused when it comes to the liberatory uh, way of uh, line of inquiry. You know, and definitely some of those methods are the literature, art, music, the propaganda, and the uh, communal collectivism that is uh, shown uh, in order to establish one's national culture. Um, I wanted to talk about Cabralism, and, and that is something that is in the international market right now in a contemporary moment. Uh, what they have done is turned the philosophical thinkings and the approach to liberation that Cabral had established, they have turned it into an actual movement and to this day, there are uh, murals and graffiti throughout the Central South America and Africa that are dedicated to uh, keeping his legacy alive. Um, I wanted to talk about it from a, it's a grassroots resistance movement. Um, history with Cabral teaches us that he was an agricultural engineer for um, Guinea-Bissau. And because of that, it allowed him the opportunities to infiltrate uh, rural areas of his of his people to ascertain what they needed in order to uh, come together collectively and generate this national culture that he was talking about. So he talks about different stages of uh, anti-colonial resistance and throughout his works. 
Um, you know, the first phase being the conquest, the cynical pacification. Um, it's not as uh, advantageous at that moment where that physical violence is, um, is at an all-time high. Um, there are pockets of resistance, but it's not at a unified front. So uh, again, you know, he talks about that first one. You might have a couple of people resisting with guns here and there. Uh, the more uh, under aware or in tune individuals. And, you know, moving into that second phase, again, you know, the harshness of colonialism and imperialism is definitely starting to impede. Uh, policy changes are starting to uh, happen. And again, um, then that's when you get the approach of, well, maybe maybe we can talk to them uh, civically. And and then again, civic nationalism definitely would not work again because it, it strips you of your agency and your cultural expression. So then, of course, the final and third ultimate phase is the liberal liberalization struggle in which Cabral does state that it means mass collectiveness of those people. Uh, without that, um, the, the, the dominant, domi the, the destroying of the dominant powers in your nation um, would be hard um, in order to rectify that. So political theory or as a weapon of politics. Uh, Cabral definitely said culture as a political act. Um, he wanted to stress that think for think African for the authentic African reality. That means understanding one's collective consciousness and re-Africanizing that by stripping yourself from all colonial um, beingness. Um, that means the way that they do politics, the way that they speak, stripping their languages, which is, of course, that ties into what uh, Ngugi Watiago is uh, manifesting in his own arguments. Um, of course, the revolutionary democracy, um, you know, derived from the commitment of the collective. And again, with that, it does establish cultural um, beingness and cohesiveness within um, the interior of the communities and not looking to outside forces to help you, um, you know, gain your, your independence. So again, you know, the collective African con um, consciousness you know, in a speech in 1971, um, you can read uh, some of the quotes that he has stated saying one of the most famous is our people. Uh, are our mountains and what he's really saying is everybody from the children all the way up to the elderly have a role in the um, the liberation of their people without those collective efforts there are going to be holes and the oppression can come in and infiltrate your uh, organizations and disrupt things um, he also uh, wanted to give credence to all anti-colonialist women um, a lot of individuals do not know that Emil Cabral also had a uh, women's army, and they were also trained in armed combat as well as the women and uh, as well as the children as well. Um, it was definitely a collective effort. Um, again, between the years of 1959 and 1973, we definitely see him uh, moving into the uh, the later phases in the colonial decolonization process. Um, you know, uh, he, of course, with NATO powers, um, the uh, dealing with the organization that he and his brother established in Guinea-Bissau, uh, we noticed that they were able to regain some of the political um, seats that they had lost in the colonial process, that they were slowly starting to overtake uh, the colonial systems. A lot of people are attributing this to because of the times of the colonial, um, the Cold War, and the ending of uh, the USSR um, slowly, and of course, uh, when the aiding of Cuba uh, with Castro, a lot of people don't understand that Emil Cabral and others uh, met with Castro um, at some point, 
in order to establish a Congress that would potentially overthrow all European nations across the world. Um, naturally, um, you know, with the McCarthyism in the era, um, you know, a lot of those efforts were um, disbanded. Also, uh, a lot of people don't understand that Amilcar Cabral met with the Pope at the time. Um, that was very political. Uh, he and two other uh, activists at the time met with the Pope. And after that meeting, his life was being threatened at an all-time rate. Because what he was actually doing was not talking about things from a civil rights issue, but from a humanitarian issue. Um, of course, again, his words were very political and culture was definitely political in that regard. Again, um, he made notions that we are not entering Lisbon in order to fight. We are fighting here on our turf and this is our land. We were not taking the fight to them. They have taken the fight to us. And what he was pretty much saying was, we know our terrain. We know where we live at. When the lights are out, we know the corners. We know how to infiltrate these places that they know, they think that they know because they've come and lived here. But we know the waterways. And what he was pretty much saying was, again, our people are our mountains, meaning we are a part of that land. So, again, as a pan-Africanist, internationalist, socialist, um, you know, it's very advantageous that uh, people understand that he was in the, uh, pro uh, in the business of nation building, transcending ethnicity, identity, and matching it with uh, a cohesive national identity. Um, of course, that can be uh, appropriated to the entire uh, African continent. Um, he, uh, of course, believed in class suicide. Uh, Emil Cabral was definitely from an affluent family. His father was a teacher and his mother was also a, a business owner, seamstress. Um, a lot of people don't understand this. He took it upon himself to understand that in order for true change to happen, he had to give up his own comfortability and his own pedestal that he had been born with. The, own, the silver spoon that he was born with, in a metaphorically way, he had to pawn that to get away from the notions that he was better than the people that he was trying to help liberate. And so, again, he, uh, uh, one of the downfalls to Emil Cabral's assessment in establishing uh, uh, the cultural nationalist perspective is he was primarily only centered in the uh, colonies that were um, controlled by the Portuguese. And um, again, um, I don't know whether or not what he was arguing would be uh, comparable to individuals outside of the Portuguese colonial system only because the Portuguese colonial system was in somewhat different than the French and the British. Um, and he was definitely able to mobilize his troops because again, they understood the terrain and the uh, geographical location of Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde and um, Mozambique are definitely in areas in which, um, you know, he was able to tap into certain resources. Um, so, he was definitely considered an African nationalist, a revolutionary pan-Africanist, um, you know, a transcontinentalist. Uh, again, the meeting with Castro in 1966, um, you know, and everything is, again, documented onto international market and international uh, newspapers. So he's definitely getting exposure beyond the means that uh, one would uh, think during this time period. So again, he helped create a re revolutionary movement he led uh, the grassroots movement by educating his people about how to uh, collectively fight a common enemy on all fronts, social, economic, environmental, um, and also uh, religiously. Um, a lot of people will uh, understand that he, uh, a lot of, do allow um, 
with Marxism, Marxism is definitely influential because we are talking about socioeconomic issues. Um, however, um, you know, the terminology is only used just to explain it, um, you know, just for more fruitful um, meaning. So with Nguyiwatiago, he definitely encompasses the same understandings of what uh, what Fanon was talking about, de decolonizing the mind and re-Africanizing oneself. What Nguyiwatiago, what he does is he's more so dedicated to literature as a form of politics uh, and writing as a form of protest and actually understanding that we have to de-Europeanize the way we speak, the way we walk, the way we talk. The, the objectives of one's life. We have to recenter ourselves in our true cultural selves in order to gain true liberation from outside and within. So again, um, uh, and Gugi Watiogo was he uh, has had many jobs over the years, which has um, shaped his understandings of life. Uh, one of his brothers was a part of the uh, Land and Freedom Party. Um, uh, individuals, some people call it the Mau Mau. Um, I was just learned that that was a derogatory term, so um, I'm having to redirect that. <laughs> um, so, and, and a lot of people don't understand that one of his brothers was that, um, his brothers was a member of that movement, and his um, other brother was actually killed by law enforcement, and they said that he failed to obey commands. However, it was learned that he was deaf, and instead of them comforting the family, his mother was actually incarcerated, where she was assaulted for over the course of three months in solitary confinement. Um, so a lot of this definitely shaped his understandings of how he had to re-Africanize his way of being, um, especially when he came into the academic uh, realm. So as a playwright, uh, a lot of people um, know his play called The Black Hermit. Um, I'm not going to talk about it from a uh, literary perspective, but more so from its political ramifications and what it meant. Also, the trial of the Dan Kamati, uh, which is what ultimately led to his uh, exile. So in the awakening in 1967 to 1972, uh, we noticed that he took uh, issues with African identi identifying themselves and articulating themselves through the languages of the Europeans. Um, at the time of the University of Nairobi in the literature department, uh, they were speaking in English and he proposed that why not go and, um, and re-Africanize the, the curriculum and, uh, and actually speak from the Guyuku uh, language. Um, and he felt as if that that's where we should actually center ourselves in Kenya. And um, also he was ostracized because of that, because at the time he was the only African on the staff. And uh, naturally, if, you know, if you're in the minority, then, you know, your uh, voices are unheard. Uh, when he went and guest lectured, uh, of course, he was angered and he left and guest lectured in Illinois. And I think that is where he experienced black protests and student protests of the 1970s and the anti-war um, um, campaigns that we had here in the United States. I think that was very critical in his uh, awakening. Um, he had a, a few crossroads again um, in 1972 and homecoming. He uh, wrote uh, Born Out of His Quest and Redesign the Center Discourse uh, again at that program. So um, here is an excerpt of uh, I Will Marry When I Want. Um, again, it's one of his other plays and it's very controversial and it talks about the colonial movement. And if you see here, and also I'm actually gonna skip to the next slide and you'll see uh, 38. On, on 38, he talks about uh, uh, how they were working under harsh conditions in order to extract materials in the, uh, in the region. 
And that's parallel to what was going on in, in that current moment and definitely in the Congo and also in other nations where uranium and vibranium and everything have been extracted. And they're saying that uh, in this, and this is a play, but what he's saying is that people are already dying at, a, at an exuberant amount of, uh, at an exuberant rate. And, you know, there's something that they don't understand, you know, and, but what they're talking about is the, you know, the big farms, the big shops, uh, the tea plantations. What he's really trying to get people to understand through a literary context is the colonizing mind. So as a novelist, definitely weak not the child, um, a grain of wheat. You know, he embraces, you know, biblical understandings of things. Uh, he narrates nationalism from that cultural perspective, all in while uh, writing in, um, you know, Guyuku. Um, although his political writings are written in English only out of fear that he would be ostracized by his peers. So, um, again, he has to, at some point, uh, understand that he has to give uh, credence to them as well. So again, as a as a scholar activist, you'll see an education for a national culture in eighty one, and uh, and this is for education in Zimbabwe. You know he offers uh, examples of how that could work. Education is the process of integrating the youth into the entire system of production, exchange, and distribution of what we eat, wear, shelter under the whole system of organized wealth of a given country. Uh, writing against neo-colonialism in 1986, you know he talks. How does a writer function in such society? He can, of course, adopt silence and self-censorship in which he is cease, ceases to be effective as a writer. And what he's saying is you have to write yourself into liberation. If you're not writing your histories, a lot of people think that history starts when the writing and the pen began, but it actually started prior to that. And that's what he's trying to get people to understand is you have to write against your oppressors because they're already writing narratives about you through news and media, through uh, propaganda, through their own publications. So, again, he, he talks about other things and moving center, the struggle for cultural freedom. You know, Africans have developed a false consciousness because the constant state of civil unrest and violence across the African continent. All of this is trying to bring awareness that we have to re-Africanize ourselves and understand that our oppressors have psychologically damaged us by stripping us of our agency and uh, mobility. Um, again, everything that he talks about is an African renaissance. Um, you know, leading up to his new publications, Global Ethics, which was mentioned earlier, and he's talking about um, how can we come globally, how can we culturally overthrow our oppressors, you know, not just socially or uh, politically, but actually changing the way we walk and talk and live ourselves and walking our own drums, how can that really change things in policy? So his latest issue is warns the eventual overall denomination and economically visible globability. So to, to wrap things up in the last minute, um, the loss of Africanity is a result of there being a lower commitment to socioeconomic justice agendas, such as those relative to social action and political advocacy. However, under the hills of colonialism, ideologies grew which challenged imperialism. This resulted in the culture of people increasing their commitment to establishing Africa-derived concepts of democracy and modernity. This propelled the people into a new age of economic and political autonomy over their lives. This research presents the argument that the cultural heritage of all African ethnic groups had to be transformed to combat or create a cultural manifestation that went against European expansionism. 
But um, this is this means that neocolonialism is um, been, has been and will always be detrimental to all people of color, and that we have to liberate ourselves from their mindsets of democracy and false liberation. Thank you.